This episode of Inspirational Insights explores a company's relationship with their integrity, their values, and with complexity. It's why head and heart are inseparable in a volatile and fast-evolving leadership context. I'm talking to Marilyn Baumeister, who is much more than a branded content strategist. Her books provide a high-level and practical overview of what's going on in the world, in the society, and why it's important for companies, brands, and people. Her consulting practice helps companies clarify who and what makes them tick in a rapidly changing society, what their values are, and why they matter in daily practice. In a world where business integrity is super transparent, her approach, say what you do and do what you say, is really pertinent to companies restoring trust. She resides in Amsterdam, which is definitely one of the coolest cities I've been to on the planet, studied in Harvard, lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and worked at a leading Dutch newspaper as a publisher and innovation manager. Marilyn reached out to me some time ago, and we've had so much fun working on her second book, which was called... Turner Hotshack. <laughs> it's in Dutch, obviously. A book Maybe. about value drive, the kernel, the heart, the purpose of what you do as an organization, and where different generations have a place at the core and shared values fall into place as the anchors for beliefs and motivations that really make an organization unique, just like the people who work there. Marilyn speaks, trains, moderates, writes, and researches from her strategy practice. Her values are being inclusive, creative, substantive, unconventional, personal, and free. That's probably why we have so much fun working together. Her previous book, which in Dutch also is? Wennen aan Wenden. Ah, there you go. It's about becoming fit for the future and work and life by using your environmental awareness. Massive resume. You're listening to the Inspirational Insights Podcast. I'm Donna Jones, your host. And I'm looking forward to having a nice chat with Marilyn. Welcome. Thank you very much, Donna. It's a pleasure to be here today with you, as always, <laughs> kindled, kindled spirits. Yeah, no kidding. I'm really, really grateful for that. Tell us, what inspires you to work with these tough concepts, hard concepts that are considered to be soft, <laughs> like integrity, values, and leadership? I think the last couple of years has taught us to be more environmentally aware or systemic aware. It's not new. We've done it for a very long time already, looking at systems surrounding us, but there's no way getting around it anymore that we are really depending on each other. The outlook of being realistic, where you stand as a company in relation to your direct environment has become very important in this day and age. I often help startups and other companies with asking them the question who they are in the midst of a changing society and what their why was. Why do you do what you do? And can you be transparent about it, even if what you do might not be matching anymore with the system that you're operating in now? Maybe it's an old system. So how can you reinterpret yourself by using your values? What inspires me to see what makes companies tick and how they can best question themselves? I'm finding some companies or some leaders, leaders with quotation marks, but there's an anti-learning thing. We already know there is to know, which is probably the deadliest 
thing you can possibly run around in your head with, because unless you're able to reflect, you've no capacity to learn, you've no capacity to improve, you're really hamstringing yourself. What are your observations about what's going on? For a very long time, we believed in painless growth. And those times are over. And we took part in not making the world a better place to live in or live on. I think the realization that you can have a great effect on the overall system, if you realize that your company itself is a system, that will bring you very far. The ability to learn allows you to soften up and realizing that you're ready to change. The ability to change has to do with the ability to learn and to grow. There's no way that you can say, okay, these are my values as a company, but you know, they're just words on a poster in the hallway and we don't deal with them. No, you have to say, okay, these are the values. We live around them. We work around them. Uh, We are fully aware of our surroundings, the people that work for us, Uh, walk the talk just like we do according to these values but values are not stiffened up and they're not set in stone you need to re-evaluate your values once in a while do they still match with current day now in your most recently published book you have plenty of examples do you have any examples that you can offer us now on companies that have either done that work on going deep because more than ever, I think this is a time for us to go deeper than we've been. We've just been moving pieces of furniture around, but without getting into the, who are we really? And and the more profound questions that guide us through a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty. Any examples of companies that you think have really done a stellar job of, of adapting and reflecting and learning? Um. Stellar jobs are always the best kids with the best grades. A stellar example doesn't show you how it was, how it developed. Mm. Um, I can work from a problem that a Dutch company had here some time ago, the Dutch States Mines, the DSM, the chemical company. And they moved from one city to another. They had a huge mining industry heritage. They had lots of people working in the past for the company, of course, having suffered health issues, but also having worked their life for the company in, in pride and, and, you know, things that they thought were, were important. What, what happened was that they wanted to move from one city in the south of Holland to another city. It was very hard for people, actually, because they said, listen, we have dedicated our lives to this great workforce. You have a debt. You have a debt as a company. You need to realize that you can't just pick up and leave when you get an offer in another city because you have um, taken care of a community or and you have used a community. You should realize that you are part of a, a system that is organic and has formed itself around you as a company. Those systems are very hard because they can be old and they're very hard to break with and not necessarily it's appreciated. When you leave, for various reasons, even as a company, you want to renew yourself and you want to go, that can be hard. It can be hard for people. There was a lot of conflict around it. Another example of how a system works is Unilever, who has a huge amount of brands under an umbrella. They in the Netherlands have a few national brands, they have international brands. 
And uh, they really did a, a good job in making their company more societal aware. For one thing, they took over Ben and Jerry's, which was very locally aware. But they had their own uh, set of rules when they entered the Unilever construct. It became a complex uh, co-op because they had their own ideas of, of dealing with society and societal problems, for instance. They had their thoughts on Israel and they had their thoughts on how you should work with certain products and they had their thoughts on other political issues. It was very hard for Unilever to stay healthily combined with this brand in their brand umbrella. There was discussion, but at least they tried. They took the risk of doing it. For me... Taking those first steps as companies to acquire a brand which is quite, well, quite woke, but they confronted themselves with it. That's worth something, even if you're like a huge industrial label with a lot of inheritance. It starts with the guts to actually do something like this. Yeah. So these yeah, are two examples. Now, I can't help but think that there's a shift in orientation in terms of what you're talking about, because the past, it's characterized by certain behaviors at the senior levels that permeate down into the organization as a system of beliefs and, and interactions and so forth. Now, that whole thing is shifting in a fairly major way, by definition. Whether the companies have figured this out or not is another matter, but certainly the requirement is there to move from thinking about things in, in a very reductionist way to looking at things in a broader way with a higher level of responsibility as well. I can remember conversations around, well, we're here for profit. That's all our role in in society. We're just here to be the economic engine. Not anymore. I think it's a bigger thing. What do you feel about that? And what do you see? Well, like Jay Bragdon say, profit serves life, right? Right. I texted him this week. And he texted me back that the idea that political economies are, of course, the subsystems of life rather than super systems that transcend life. He referred to Donella Meadows. Those system dynamics have become even more important in current days. The realization that you have to have a certain course that you need to follow, but it's always influenced from different angles is a starting point. One of the things that that Jay talks about in his books, Profit for Life, and then the second one is companies that mimic, you know, it's the corporate renaissance in terms of culture. And he's the most recent one on on economies that mimic ecological principles and how they do. And basically, those are the Scandinavian economies. The point of all that is that he talks about stewardship management. And I remember when I first brought that word out in 2006, when Jay's first book came out, there was just a lot of pushback on it. Because people don't like the word stewardship for whatever reason. Probably because it has a biblical connotation to it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that. But now when we talk about whether you you use the word stewardship or you use some other word, it's a shift in orientation. How would you describe it? There are economic models and whole companies that are constructed around stewardship. There are even people that own parts of the company, employees that own parts of the company, like, uh, for instance, in John Lewis in the UK. Those are companies that are completely employee-run. That's a way of looking at stewardship. You give people ownership over part of the company in order for them to care for everything that surrounds the company and, and its interest. But I think the other way 
looking at stewardship is in looking at your direct surroundings, where you can be of benefit for others that are in the periphery of your company, meaning your supply chain. We like to call it the supply chain. I think it's just an organic way of working with people. They provide you with something that you need and you need people to work on things you need. So you provide them with things they need. For some reason, in the last decades, that relationship has changed in order to make more profit. Lots of companies took more than they gave back. There are governments that are pressing the companies to do a better job at looking at sustainability. That's a pressure from the outside. But you should feel a pressure from the inside based on your values to react on things differently, walking your talk, being transparent in, in what you do in your chains. I went to the Dutch director of, of Patagonia, the outdoor brand, and he told me, yeah, Marina, the, the case is you need to put the problems that you face as a company in the middle for everyone to see what you're struggling with. That kind of transparency goes very far, but it's necessary in times like this. That has to do with stewardship. If you feel that you really want to make a difference and you feel like you're the steward of a company, you can be a steward leader to to be so transparent that you actually show your problems and the solution that you are thinking about, you could um, display it in a way that you're seeing it and you're working on it. Doesn't necessarily have to be directly that you place a solution, but the fact that you are showing the world that you identify your own problems and you approach them strategically in order for them to resolve within three months, five years. I think that is the case in a stewardship leader should have that kind of transparency and the guts to actually confront the company with problems and being able to listen to other stewards, which are employee stewards, for them to come up with solutions. And even partners in a bigger chain work with others. For instance, the sustainability issues we have in the Netherlands, that we don't want to use gas anymore. We want to have like warm pumps and all kinds of other things. That is a solution that only will work if we will transgress to a more sustainable future with other people, with partners that actually make it happen that you can have systemic change because you're not alone. You're actually with fellow partner stewards to make a bigger project work. Good work has never been an individual exercise. And Europe right now is dealing with the the switch over, moving away from Russian oil to alternative energy. That's about as big a daunting, complex, systemic issue that I could possibly come up with. So it, it touches every part of life and every aspect. So the whole notion of keeping business over here as the economic engine pretty much ignores your part of something much bigger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you and I had a lot of fun working with complexity when we were <laughs> working. I'm going to show you this book because it's just graphically <laughs> brilliant. Can you see that? And it's got little holes in it. No, you can look through it. <laughs> For those of you who are listening to this and not seeing the video, just have to imagine what that looked like. We had a lot of fun thinking about how can people stand back and look at complexity. It's an ethereal concept. We can feel it. We can sense it. It's not something you can see visually per se, but if you've got decisions to make in an environment that's changing fast, there's more than one factor involved. The overall temptation, especially in companies, is to reduce it and make it simple. 
reduce complexity into something we can wrestle with, which is simple, rather than updating our thinking to meet the actual level of the situation, which is complex, extremely dynamic, volatile, one would argue. In all of that, we put together something that I thought was a lot of fun, but it gives companies, it gives individuals just a way to reflect on what's your relationship with complexity? What's your relationship with all of the dimensions of it? Would you mind sharing a little bit about what you feel is going on in the aspect of complexity and how companies are dealing with it and what the value is of actually walking into that tougher zone? Overall, there's a temptation to run the opposite direction. (laughs) Well, that's exactly the, the answer I wanted to give. The whole complexity is about facing it. Yeah. The head of Patagonia told me if you're not able to put complexity in the middle of your company, you're going to have a a problem solving it because you need to look at it first. It it might be entertaining to give you some examples of people who actually did the list in the back of the book. They find it very hard to be able to actually have a helicopter view on the company. As a side note, when Marilyn refers to the list, she's referring to a quiz that we brainstormed together, but then she transcribed it into outstanding visual graphics that make it easy to walk through and and get a feeling for what your relationship is with complexity. I've asked employees, I've asked employers, I've asked some CEOs to look at the list. Some people weren't able to zoom in and out in the different levels that we gave them. If you want to think as a system engineer, you have to look at all levels because it is a very detailed level. How good am I for people that work for me? To uh, a very high over level, what is my company's value in society? What we do in the book is ask about the the higher level and then we zoom in and we narrow it down and the more it gets narrowed down the more concrete answers you need to give the best take home value from making this um, test in the book or asking yourself how do I deal with complexity is see if you're ready to be able to translate the abstract into the tangible A lot of system thinkers tend to stick in the system as something that is highly abstract. I think that you need to ask yourself the question, what small thing that I haven't thought of makes the difference? If I tilt this little domino, what will be the effect higher up? And not only think, oh, this is our strategy and now we're going to give it to someone and it will cause an effect. You don't know what kind of effect it will be, but be very concrete and make sure that you look at things from a very pragmatic way of doing. What will actually change if I tilt this, if I make this a little different, if I displace this, what will be the effect in the chain? What will it mean when I ask a peer or a business relation about the way they do business or how do they handle things? That can be a primary learning. I think a lot of people that deal with complexity, they're afraid to ask their employees, their business peers, their partners for advice (laughs) or their opinion or their perspective and maybe their best tips. 
eventually it starts with being human, placing your company in a role as a human being, curious, looking at things from a more investigative way of doing. Complexity has to do with the fact that you want to go on a quest. It can be a quest for truth. It needs to be your own truth, but it starts with a quest and the energy to keep asking, why do we do this? Heart disease, all the medical research had been done on men, while women have a completely different way of showing physically that they have a condition of the heart. Why have we always done something that is just one-sided or uh, monofocused? Complexity starts with being investigative, looking at things from a different angle. Yeah, absolutely. The more shifting of perspective you can do, the easier it is to transform your experience with the realities that are showing up. It gives you perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Canada, Western West Coast. It's a very sheltered environment overall from what's going on in the rest of the world, even though we've got a really, I would say, mixed population. We've got a huge number of Brazilians that have come up here, particularly to work in the mm-hmm. tech industry, largely because they cannot live with the existing political environment. Brazil's lost great minds. We're in this environment and it's easy to pretend that there's nothing else out there that's going on. It's really hard for people to keep perspective. One guy was complaining about the dandelions growing in his driveway. It's keeping perspective on things. I think that's where the whole brain, the holistic approach, thinking, remembering that we're part of a much bigger world. And people are also forgetting we're on a planet. It's a spaceship, an oasis in the galaxy, and we treat it like a garbage dump. That whole shifting of perspectives gives you a way of seeing just how things are evolving, where you are in your own evolution, the capacity to reflect as an individual, the capacity to reflect as a company, give you perspective, give you the chance to just say, geez, here's what we've managed to do. I believe, Donna, that we talked about looking through life through different lenses, right? Yeah. Using different sets of lenses as an industry leader or as a company or as a brand or as an employee, it's very hard to actually get out of your own niche or your silo or whatever you want to call it and take a broader look at what you are doing. I think if you ask people in their daily jobs, people that just work from nine to five, do their thing, go home. And if you pose a simple question, what have you done today that contributes to something else than just finishing a task? they probably wouldn't be able to, to answer. I love what you just said there, because what it really speaks to is meaning. Where do I find meaning in my day-to-day? Meaning and purpose. Where do I find that in my day-to-day? Exactly. The purpose is not an individual exercise either. It's a, a purposeful drive as a company is a major asset. And it's actually where a Generation Z will, will select their brands and their companies on. Their purpose, their drive, and their value drive. Very different generation than any other. Very sensitive yeah. to the topic as well. And thank heavens for that, because yeah. the expectations are different. The opportunity to draw on a much more profound and deeper level of human talent is, exists there, which I think is fantastic. It's about time. <laughs> Can we just zip to uh, the question around leadership? We've got a combination of this generation coming up, which looks at what's been done and says, I don't want to be doing it that way. Totally fair enough. There's some value to be gained in my point of view, probably because of the, you know, cohort of age I'm in, but also the reality is that we have to work on big things 
collectively. We can't do it alone. Otherwise, people start pointing fingers at who's to blame for climate change or name, name the large global issue. There's blaming going on, which really is completely takes the energy and, and misuses it. How would you describe the character of a real leader, one that's operating from inner wisdom without relying on the position of authority to define expertise? Young people, they're dealing with layer in organizations where the assumption is if you're in a position of authority, you know everything there is to know. They're turning out to be the, the roadblocks to serious adaptation. Yeah. What, what do you feel about that? How do you see that? It's very... Uh, culturally defined and it makes a huge difference whether you are in Europe, in Brazil or in Asia, for instance, because age in, in a society of Japan is still very much leading. Knowledge comes with age, different way of working. I would say that there is a stewardship compass that has been developed by Rajiv Peshawaria from the Stewardship Asia Center in Singapore. He made this really nice roster or compass. He said, well, you need to know as a steward leader, because very fond of steward leaders, because they're very much internally driven. They know their own values, they know their company values, but they also have a steward compass and a stewardship goal. That consists of a long-term vision on what you want to reach, combined with, of course, short-term win, because money doesn't bring you... um, a joy but it will bring you your long-term goals eventually you need money to reach certain goals it would be naive to say that isn't the case i think ownership is also one of the things that that comes into place in that compass having ownership for the environment for well-being ownership for your work for the, the the tasks you have of course creativity is one because i think innovation is been driven by uh, creativity. There should be openness and willingness to listen to creative ideas from every layer in your company. As a leader, that can be threatening because it might change your course. But if you are a steward leader, you know exactly what your stewardship goal is and where you want to be in a couple of years and that you actually need that energy to transgress. So that your personal values and the values of the organization and interdependence with your employees, with your partners, with the chain you operate in. All those factors combined makes you realize that you can't do it alone and you're responsible for your environment. And a leader should be aware of that there are factors that are seem to be soft and uh, maybe not tangible, but these are the factors in the in the stewardship compass that really make a difference. The creativity, the personal values, the goal that you're aiming for, the long-term relationship, that you, you actually have a good relationship with the long-term, not only going for the quick wins. Everything that you do has an effect on something else. You can create your own tipping points at, 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 at some point. You can actually make a change by you know, displaying a certain behavior. As a leader, it starts with you displaying that behavior and putting that into your leadership and into your practice in order for your company to blossom. That has a lot to do with personal leadership as well. Well said. I've been told over and over again, people want to know what to do on Monday morning. How do we take all of this stuff, the concepts, the 
Detectable stuff, the the pragmatics. Yeah, yeah. You know, Monday morning when I show up, how am I going to become a systems seer and thinker and then understand how to relate that to my decision making? Any particular hints that you can offer our listeners on what to do Monday morning? (laughs) What to do on a blue Monday? Yeah. Um, I would say take one bottleneck in your chain of command, which has to do with one process. And see and analyze what that small factor is that causes the problem in that chain. And that can be at the end of the week, everyone in this department is highly demotivated. Then you start asking people why. (laughs) Well, and it seems that people don't like long meetings and they rather have an agile way of working on to speed up their process and they feel locked up in, in something. And then you decide to kill those meetings. Just a small example. But there are larger examples. There is a supplier in the chain that wants to onboard as a supplier. And they don't know how to do it, but they're very willing But you have a, let's say, a department that is keeping them from coming aboard because the paperwork is not done. So how do you do this? Because it can be a great beneficial thing to your company, this partner is coming on board. And on the other hand, there's paperwork and everything in between that doesn't allow them to come aboard. So you're going to look at that company, you're going to look at the department, and you're going to say, okay, so instead of having all this paperwork in order, what is really necessary to get these people on board? And then you peel off the problem, and it seems that there's no paperwork needed, but something else needed to get those people on board. It can be very simple things. If you tie your shoelaces, you need to know how to untie them. A A lot of companies are so stuck in their own systems, in their own processes, that they don't know how to untie their own laces anymore. Open the shoe and take the shoe off. The Monday morning tip would be take something that is very close to you, which is highly frustrating, and see what effect this has on you and your department or your direct colleague, and what is a way to solve this, and what do other people think about it. Open the dialogue, put the complexity in the middle, and see what can be done about it. Easy does it. Both the books that we've been talking about today, they're still in Dutch. Any chance it's going to be translated? What's the scoop on that? The scoop is that I'm actually negotiating with my publisher to get it translated in English. And then it needs to be more easy to ship. I'll keep you posted on it. Okay. That'd be great. So Donna, if I could ask you, what would you change tomorrow in something in a process that you're stuck in? Oh, wow. I love how you just flipped that back at me. Trust you to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I think the process we've been stuck in for a long time is trying to soften rigidity of thinking. Yeah. So so that more opportunities can, so work environments can become more human. The the kinds of decisions we saw some companies do, which is you're going to do it my way or the highway. We don't see that anymore. We see more, more curiosity. If I boil it down, I'd like to replace fear with curiosity. I I think bravery, right? Go out there and show them your stuff, even if it's very hard. I still find it hard. I still find it hard to have conversations about 
transparency sometimes. It's also very hard to say, oh, what have you done lately to become more transparent? It's always easy to tell other people what they should do, how they should act. Sometimes I just tell clients, oh, I need to think about it. I don't know. Or I need to go back and see if we can untie this lace. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. I don't know why your brand all of a sudden is, is not doing as well as it used to do. And then you need to go back to the drawing table and then you need to go back into the company and talk to people and ask them. I think we stopped asking somewhere along the road, didn't we? Definitely. Fear will do that. Even though people can't name a fear, you can see it. If the options for the decisions come down to one, this is the only thing we can do. Or if there's no curiosity, fear is running the show. That's the distinction. I think that's the easiest part of it. The other thing to answer the other dimension of the question is that we're still grappling with how do you change a system? Yeah. I don't know for sure, but I do know that it's not by analysis. <laughs> analysis <laughs> paralysis, remember? Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, and we put something together in 2006 that was about dealing with the fundamental beliefs of, of an, an organization. And there was absolutely crickets in response, like nobody cared. Basically, the message I was getting was, why would anyone want to reflect on themselves or their organizations <laughs> when they can just buy a package off the shelf? Go to the big consulting company, just buy a package. You don't have to think, off you go. And I thought, oh my gosh, we are doomed. <laughs> I suspect, and I don't know for sure, but I would love to roll out into an organization, an opportunity to reflect on what are the fundamental beliefs and then shift those beliefs because some of them are really archaic. The one that if you focus on profit, you get more profit is a fallacy. It's been proven over and over and over again. Jay's research in his investment uh, portfolio demonstrates that along with a bunch of other really exemplar companies who are ethical. But the ones that are unethical demonstrate that if you go for profit unethically, you might make more. But at a high cost to social health and wellness, employee health and wellness. And there's some real incongruencies that I've seen as well. Destroyed planet, right? Exactly. And just goofy stuff. I've got on tape a, a conversation I had with an HR person during COVID who normally would take the bus to go to work, but because all the fears, she walked four hours to work and four hours home. Now, you can't do that if you're a mom, but she did that. She asked for Uber. Can I get my Uber covered? And the company wouldn't do that, but they were giving mileage allowances to anybody who changed off public transit into using their car to come in. If you zoomed out a bit and looked at that, you would be more fair. You would be not trying to set up something that punished one group because they didn't have a car, which is actually environmentally intelligent. And supported the other group who did have a car. This is where the combination of reflection, zooming out, looking at things from a different angle, as you said earlier, really offers some insight into what are we basing our decisions on here? And what does that translate into? It's striking. You were talking about COVID. I just recently came across an article that stated that there were motivational coaches at work needed to motivate people to get back into the office. Yeah. Well, that says something, doesn't it? Yeah, you'd, you'd be, you'd be, it would be more intelligent to actually look at why people won't come back in than to run out and try and whip them and into try, coming try back. To whip them with all good energy, whip them back into the office. No, yeah. just ask why. Is it because you want to work four days from home and because you're a young parent and you like to actually do your own things in your own time? 
And the thing yeah. is, the cost of an office, it's a high cost. Maybe they can have some reduction in office space, but then people need to come back. And they need to chat to each other. This is very different from meeting face-to-face. And then you decide that your colleagues aren't that nice as your own <laughs> environment. It's hardship sometimes. And it's hard also for um, companies dealing with issues like this, the, the whole social dynamics behind it. People working in teams with people that are not necessarily the people they would form a system with in the more traditional companies. If you form a system in a new setting, in a new kind of company, you might have a system of people that are kindred spirits or peers that want to work together. It's an interesting thought, eh? having voluntarily being together because you like each other, you have the same values and and you go for the same goal. Maybe we'll see more companies that actually, when COVID hit, everybody wants to go back (laughs) to the office. Who knows? The real strategic advantage from my point of view is working with diverse points of view. If you can work with diverse points of view, then you can build something that can withstand a lot of interruptions, not just withstand the interruption, but utilize them to come up with something better. That's really the pivot point we're in right now. Marilyn, uh, time to wind this up. Anything you want to leave our listeners to reflect on? Anything that that is more perhaps at more at a personal level that, that you'd like to share? Bravery and guts for the near future. And of course, in a long breath, it will take a while for a system to change. But I think if we're all open about our motivations and we are able to work around issues that we have together, we'll come a long way. And that sounds a little bit uh, fluffy, but if we are confronting ourselves with complexity a bit more and we allow ourselves to constructively work around these complexities together, we'll come a long way. I think that is uh, something I want to put into the equation. Beautiful. I love it. Now, where do people go for more information on your work? They can go to my website and they can always get in touch with me through LinkedIn. My LinkedIn profile is just ready to rumble in case of any questions. (laughs) Drop me a line. I'm open to any kinds of conversations and very willing to give answers to the most stringent questions. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. It was fun.